Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the President of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Bill, welcome back. Uh, another week, another podcast. And another virus to talk about, many different viruses, I guess, right? We've been yeah, yeah, hearing about all these different viruses. Yes, there's a lot. I don't know, I'm sure people are interested and it's because I know they are, because it's come up. You know, <laughs> are there really all these new viruses or is this just something we're hearing more about because of COVID? and and so I think there's a lot of questions out there about all these different things we're hearing about. Well, you know, that's a really good point, because as a microbiologist, I could tell you that some of these are new variants of existing viruses, um, for example, SARS-CoV-2, but there have certainly been coronaviruses around for, you know, millennia evolving alongside of us as humans. So that's not new. And then, of course, we've been hearing about adenovirus. That's not new. And then monkeypox. That's been going on on the African continent. And we've had occasional cases over the years. So it's just interesting that we're hearing about all of these cases now. Um, some thoughts from the community have been, you know, perhaps we've kind of decreased some of our immunity over the past couple of years with coronavirus. And so now uh, we're getting, you know, more outbreaks and they're coming up in a typical fashion than we would normally expect. Yeah, I think like monkeypox is a good example of that, as I understand it, because that's, right. again, something that's been around for you know, centuries, actually, from what we can tell. As, and you can correct me, you're the, you're the microbiologist, I'm the <laughs> hematopathologist. But the other thing that's really interesting about that, too, is that it also has an animal reservoir, which actually isn't even monkeys. It's actually right, it's rodents. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. These are, But it's just catching people's attention because okay. we haven't had very many outbreaks. And this one does seem a little bit peculiar, I guess, and compared to others. I don't know. But you know more about that than I do. Well, thankfully, we've had some experts just recently talking about these. So we had Dr. Matt Vinegar, who's our head of... Uh, clinical virology, and uh, Dr. Binniger talked about both the uh, unexplained cases of hepatitis in children, which may be associated with a, a strain of adenovirus. And then he also talked about monkeypox virus. And then um, recently, we've also had Dr. Ellie Thiel, our director of the Infectious Disease Serology Lab, talking about Powassan virus, uh, which is a tick-borne virus. And then, of course, you and I have been talking about coronavirus for, gosh, years now, right? Yeah, yes, <laughs> true enough, it has been years. You know, and I think it's kind of interesting to me. Monkeypox caught a lot of media attention, I think, because of the name. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, this this uh, viral infection, apparent viral hepatitis in children, thankfully rare, but actually quite serious. I think um, it, yeah. it, it, so it can be a, even some fatalities or need for liver transplant uh, have been reported. So I think it speaks to the need for continued vigilance, identifying these different pathogens that can infect humans and cause real problems. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as the microbiologist, as you mentioned, I can give uh, our audience some general fun facts about viruses, although probably most people now have a pretty good idea of what a virus is. But it's interesting, there's some debate as to whether or not they're actually alive, because um, 
they can carry genetic material and they can replicate that genetic material, but they lack cell structures. So they're kind of right on the edge of life. They're really not quite alive. Um, and of course we can't see them with our naked eye or even a routine light microscope. Um, and they can infect every single other type of life form on the planet, including bacteria. So kind of fascinating, also kind of scary. And I'll give you one other fun fact. Um, there are only two organisms that we have eradicated through human activity purposefully, um, and that is uh, smallpox virus and rinderpest virus. So the two organisms we've been able to eradicate by the use of vaccines have both been viruses. One's a human pathogen and one's a cattle pathogen. Huh. Interesting, yeah. it's fascinating. You know, it's funny um, that you mentioned that because I remember for those of us that have been in the public domain uh, through the pandemic, that was really challenging early on about where you could catch COVID from, you know, and was it alive on surfaces? And it's like, well, is that, it's not a very straightforward question to answer because of the, what you exactly what you said, but to try and explain that on the fly could be pretty difficult. So I think though, overall, there is an awareness now around viruses clearly that there was not in the past, mostly because we've had some near misses with these, um, you know, like uh, like the SARS first SARS outbreak or MERS, or even the you know the Zika virus was more limited in terms of it didn't affect everybody, and Ebola was one that we worried about. So like, they're out there, um, and I think that, and more importantly too, is that um, we probably have to keep dealing with this. And I know, as a for instance, you brought up the possum possum virus. That there's others I think that are in your division. We're working on bringing the tests up even as we speak, right? Or looking into that. Yeah, on my list for development is heartland virus. That's another virus transmitted by ticks. Bourbon virus would be lower down, but also something to consider. Then we have Jamestown Canyon virus, which is spread by mosquitoes. And um, as you know, I'm interested in things transmitted by vectors, ticks, mosquitoes, sand flies. Um, and then of course, there's a whole host of other viruses out there. You've mentioned some like Ebola. To me, this really, uh, brings three things to mind. First of all, we are indeed a global society. You and I have been saying this all along. Um, you can circumnavigate the globe in 24 to 36 hours at the equator. So you can bring Ebola or monkeypox quickly to many other parts of the country. Um, so then the second point would be, obviously we need to identify those cases to prevent the spread. Uh, you brought up those near misses, like the first SARS was very quickly contained by the public health system, and that was essential. So it, it came up into Canada, but it never came down into the United States. If it had, we could have had a, a whole outbreak like what we're experiencing now. And that link brings me to my third point, which is the importance of testing, because without the laboratory being able to detect these new pathogens, figuring out what they are, um, that leads to vaccines, that leads to treatment, and it leads to all of our public health measures and understanding how they spread. So it all comes back to the lab, right? Yeah, it does indeed. And actually, this is another, I know we've talked about things that are of interest at the federal government level, but this is obviously another topic is the whole concept of pandemic preparedness because all of these viruses, the ones that you describe, are ones that make their way into human. They exist, and many of them we don't, we have no inkling. They're living out in animal reservoirs. But once they cross into humans, if they have the ability to spread by human transmission, you have the potential for an outbreak. In the past, in the U.S., it's really been the 
within the purview of the CDC and the public health laboratories to create the test to respond to this. But when, you know, with COVID, gosh, go back a couple of years ago now, clearly, and even over the last, you know, two years ago, the summer when we were really struggling, uh, we couldn't keep up with demand. There is an active, very active piece of legislation being worked on in terms of pandemic preparedness, probably more than one, but there's one I'm aware of. And a big part of that is really conversations now about what does that look like from a testing perspective? What happened with COVID was we had public-private partnerships, which really were, had to characterize the occasion. And what can we learn from that? I know there were a lot, probably a lot of people listening to podcasts that were working in labs that were really frustrated because it felt like a COVID test should be something that could have developed. And we really need to, and we didn't harness all the laboratory infrastructure that we had in the country as quickly as we would have wanted. This is the kind of thinking because all of these pathogens have the ability to appear on the scene and create the need for tests that weeks before did not exist. Yeah, when you're dealing with something brand new, clearly you need people to very quickly analyze what it is, figure it out. Uh, we were lucky early on that we had scientists that shared the genetic code, the sequence data for SARS-CoV-2 so that people could start developing tests. And then it really did lead to that public-private partnership to develop testing. But I agree that there's still opportunities. I think it could have happened faster. Uh, usually our public health labs are the first ones to get actual virus and material. And so looking at ways that that could then be turned into control material so other people could develop tests would be important. So I think this pandemic preparedness uh, legislation is going to be quite important and has some really good potentials, uh, especially because we now know that there are going to be other outbreaks in the future. We've been seeing that it looks like about every three to five years, we see something crop up and it might be small, it might go away on its own, but it's it's gonna continue to challenge us and, and keep us in business, I suppose. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the, the, the good news is that a lot of the capabilities exist, right? As you mentioned, the public health has having access to, to, to the material and all early on. We now need a flexible rules, really, that allows these things to be shared, because right now the public health labs and CDC are very reticent to share materials, and it has to do with kind of the rules about how that happens. And so we need to be more forward-looking in some of the, the policies that we have in place and procedures to help us all respond more quickly. And that's the good news. And the challenging news, as you said, is we've had, look, we've already described, it did, I've been now in my eighth year as chair, we've had three different viral outbreaks, COVID being the most dramatic that, that I've had to think about how we're going to respond. And what is clear is that as the earth changes, as there's more people on it, there's more and more contact between humans and animals and animals that we haven't been around before. So there's, that's where a lot of these reservoir for viruses are, as you said. So we have to be ready because it has been a three to five year cycle. I think there's a sense right now, well, when people talk about this, is it just being alarmist and taking advantage of the pandemic? And it's no, unfortunately, this is something we've been dealing with as a species for, you know, mm-hmm. eons really, but also something that we are probably going to be had see happening more frequently between more people and more travel, as you said. I agree. And in my world with vectors, mosquitoes and ticks, they're they're changing their distribution too. As the climate changes, they're moving into places that they haven't been before. And then yeah. that puts more people at risk. So it's very, it's definitely multifactorial as to why we are seeing more novel pathogens or outbreaks of known pathogens now than we did before. Yeah, that's a great point too. I mean, just as a, for instance, I know 
that there's, I think, was it encephalitis? There was something in the Southwest because it was so rainy over the winter that they had more mosquitoes and more transmission of mosquito-borne uh, illnesses. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a changing world, and we're going to have to be, the labs are going to have to be able to keep up. Well, I think that we have a strong foundation to build on, and we have some new legislation that hopefully will help. Um, and we'll just keep working on this and, and presenting what we know to the rest of the lab community through this podcast. That's right. And uh, hopefully when, for all of us to continue to work together, because to, mm-hmm. we are. I mean, that's one thing we can't let the memory fade of how important the labs are in terms of protecting the public health. Absolutely. Well, always great talking to you, Bill. Thanks again yes. for joining me. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's always my pleasure. So I look forward to our next conversation. Great. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.